Professor Frank, Professor Frank will make you laugh, will make you think, he likes to run, and then the thing with the <clears throat> person. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpsons joke came from. Regardless, each week we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the Dr. Kelp to my buddy love, or maybe the buddy love to my Dr. Kelp, depending on the day, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you feeling today, bud? Nutty. Uh, mm, uh, I see what you what did, I did there. there. Yeah, no, I see what you did there. That's good. That's good. That's good. To that? which, well, no, it's not really, but that's fine. To which, this week, we watched The Nutty Professor, mercifully, the one from the 1960s. You may remember this movie from such Simpson episodes as Season 2's Old Money, Season 6's Grandpa vs. Sexual Inadequacy, Season 13's The Blunder Years, and pretty much any episode that includes Springfield's favorite mad scientist, Professor Frink! That's not really... That was more Jay Sherman than Professor Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, really. Uh, Well, anyway, yeah, so uh, Professor Frank, the nutty professor, uh, Nate? (laughs) Well, Adam, uh, you know, for for those of us who have not seen it, actually, neither of us had seen this movie. No, it's true, yeah. This is one of those few movies where we actually, neither of us had seen it going into it. Right, so... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm chewing on a chip, which is kind of fun. Like this is sort of the first, the first of these in this series that we've done where we both were really going in blind, not knowing what to expect, and the results. <laughs> we'll get to the results, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, for for other folks who are in the same boat as us, Adam, uh, how would you sum this movie up in a sentence or so? Not very good. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, <clears throat> it is a Jerry Lewis take on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Um, and we'll get into what a Jerry Lewis take <laughs> really means. But um, uh, yeah, Nate, yeah. Why, did you, why did you put me through this? <laughs> All right. Well, so this I guess, is, no, yeah. spoiler alert, I did not like the movie really? uh, very much. Shocker. Um, so... Let's just get that. At, we're just going to lay that. Normally, we'd like to save that for the wrap up. But I feel it's important to just get that out of the way that this movie was more of a chore than a delight. So just, yeah. just putting that out there. So, yeah. Why did you put me through this? So this is one of those movies that, number one, people who are in comedy often seem to reference this movie. Right. Yes. Talk about how important it is. A lot of people talk about how great Jerry Lewis is and all that kind of stuff. And the character of Dr. Frank is sort of a, uh, well, he's not really a parody of this character, but the voice of Dr. Frank is an impersonation of Jerry Lewis doing this. A vocal parody of the Jerry Lewis nutty professor type. Yeah, for sure. So, So that was sort of the point of interest. And also, like we were saying, neither of us have seen this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not really my cup of tea at like, not just did I not also not really love this movie, <laughs> but also like it's totally outside of my comfort zone. I don't like the Three Stooges. I don't like this era of comedy very much. And frankly, I don't really like a lot of comedy movies. 
in general. Right. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. I love cartoons actually. Like, and that's when I was coming to the Simpsons, it's like, I was a Nickelodeon kid. I loved all totally. of those cartoons growing up. So that was sort of how I came into comedy. So this was an interesting step into <laughs> a new territory for me. Right. Um, which is, I will say it's interesting because I kind of am the polar opposite, I, which is, we keep, <laughs> which seems to be the, the interesting thing about us is in many ways we are polar opposites, <laughs> but where we align, we align so closely mm-hmm. and that's why we're best friends. So, but I, yeah, like growing up when I was a kid, like I loved the Three Stooges. I remember the Three Stooges was on Sunday mornings and this was when, for whatever reason, my family was still going to church. Like we tried that for a few years. And when I say my family, I really just mean my mom. Right. Because my dad would stay home and watch Three Stooges reruns on TV. And that's what I wanted to do. Like Homer the Heretic. Yeah, literally. It was literally (laughs) like Homer the Heretic. I was not allowed to stay home. My dad was. I was jealous. So, yeah, I loved the Three Stooges growing up. But then, yeah, I I mean, I always say I don't love modern comedies, but I, I loved that sort of 70s, 80s era of comedies from you know, like the Monty Python era up to sort of like the Ghostbusters era or whatever. We talked about how, you know, they don't really make movies like that anymore. And that's, mm-hmm. it, you, we talked about that all sort of in the, the Karate Kid episode. But it's also funny too, because as a kid, I had an affinity for older films. Like I loved Some Like It Hot, that which was like from like the 50s and in black mm-hmm. and white. And it's, you know, the American Film Institute top 100 funniest films of all time. I'm pretty sure it's number one. Like they voted it as the funniest American movie ever made. Then obviously I went through a period in high school where I soaked up every Woody Allen movie that came out. And and so, yeah, I enjoy comedies a lot. But as I've gotten older, it's funny how my like tolerance for this era has sort of weaned. Mm -hmm. And the pacing of it just doesn't do it for me anymore. And I mean, when we watch You Only... You only... I was going to say you only move twice. You only live twice. We both, as sort of like extra research, watched the very tedious Casino Royale spoof film. Casino Royale. Which is very much, I feel, in the same vein as this. And we both found that to be just an absolute slog. Yeah. And that's really how I felt about this. I'm glad that I sort of have seen it because it was obviously very, very influential. And we'll get into both influential in terms of comedy, but also in terms of actual filmmaking techniques. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those movies where I'm like, you must have had to be there because, I mean, we're at least 60 years out. 70 years in, I don't know, I'm terrible at math. But it felt like it was a movie from 60 years ago. Like, it just... Yeah. It, it just doesn't work today. For sure. Yeah, well, so let's give the full summary of the movie here before we dive too deeply into all of it. When I was trying to find, like, a, a creative source for a summary for this, um, I decided to look to the French. And that's because apparently, and again, I knew nothing about Jerry Lewis coming into this. Apparently, the French really love Jerry Lewis. Very highly regarded over in in France for some reason. (laughs) Well, so apparently it's because he was sort of seen as like a great example of an auteur. Mm -hmm. And like right around the time when French film criticism is really bubbling up, they were looking at Jerry Lewis and being like, He's acting, he's directing, he's inventing like new cinema techniques, you know, writing. Yeah, writing. He's doing the whole thing and his movies have a point of view. 
And this idea of the auteur becomes like a really big deal in French cinema. You have like French new wave filmmakers like Jean-Luc Godard, you know, saying he's the only filmmaker making progressive films, you know, which is like a wild claim, but whatever. And the guy wins awards in France's National Order of the Legion of Honor, uh, the Medal of the City of Paris. You know, this guy is like, he's a superstar in France. So um, I tracked down an old, uh, I believe the the original poster for this film in French. Oh. Um, and I thought, Adam, uh, since I think you were always better at French than oh, I was, <laughs> you might take a crack at at uh, <clears throat> reading this aloud in French. Now, do you want me to do it with my comedic Simpsons French accent, or <laughs> or should I try and do this not offensively? Uh, surprise uh, me. Okay. <laughs> Forgive me, folks. It's been at least 15, 16 years since I've done this. <clears throat> Dans la journée, il luche. Il est un professeur de chimie et il s'appelle le docteur Jerry. La nuit, il se transforme en Don Juan qui séduit tous les filles. Et il s'appelle Monsieur Love. Car notre Jerry Lewis a retrouvé la formule du docteur Jekyll, exclamé chez Marc. Et nous assistons à la plus délirante paradis du roman de Stevenson, dont le moindre détail nous comble de joie. <laughs> that was, I mean, your accent is still better than mine, even when you're I, fun of I it, really so. do have to apologize to the French. Um, please don't kick me out of your beautiful country. Yeah, you're not getting the Medal of the City of Paris. <laughs> no, I'm um, not. So uh, the translation here, you know, again, this is like a mixture of Google and me taking some liberties to make it sound normal. But during the day, he's cross-eyed, he's a chemistry teacher, and his name is Dr. Jerry. That's not what his name is in the English version. At night, he turns into a Don Juan who seduces all the girls, and his name is Mr. Love. That's because our Jerry Lewis, our Jerry Lewis, it Mm. says... Mm. has found the formula of Dr. Jekyll, and we get to witness the most delirious parody of Stevenson's novel, the slightest detail of which fills us with joy. Just just listen to the love in that description of Jerry so, Lewis. Maybe you didn't come across this in your research. I did know that he was sort of like highly, highly regarded and revered in France. Mm-hmm. But what I read is that it turns out he shouldn't have been. Because apparently what was going on at the time was that the French comedians that were dubbing these films would essentially just rewrite them. They would basically rewrite them for French sensibilities, for French humor. And basically the guy who was dubbing all of these Jerry Lewis movies was essentially improving them. And because at the time the only way to see these foreign films was to see the foreign distributed version of them, the people of France never saw the English language version of a bunch of these Jerry Lewis movies. And it wasn't until things like DVDs became available that all of a sudden these people saw them and were like, these are not good. These are not the things we thought they were. So really, it's it's actually credit to this French actor, Jacques Dinam, that he really was the one who should have been getting all this credit all these years for like writing these brilliant French comedies. They were not seeing the same movie we were seeing, which explains a lot. Right. <laughs> ah, that's interesting. Yeah. So and- now, of course, now I want to, I'm like, well, I want to track down the French dubbed version and watch that. And maybe I would have enjoyed it more. It's true. I wonder what it's like. Or maybe it'll just be lost in translation. Well, but yeah, there's that too. 
But uh, but yeah, so you know, it's it's interesting that they changed the first name of the character from mm-hmm. Julius to Jerry to just even like double down on the marketing yeah, totally. of Jerry Lewis in France. And I think it's actually a pretty good summary overall. I mean, it's like most people are familiar with the story of Jekyll and Hyde. This basically takes that story and turns it from a tragedy where the title character dies at the end to a comedy, both in the sense that it's funny, but also in the sort of, you know, like classical sense of it ends with a couple getting together. And the most bizarre epilogue I think I've ever seen in a movie. Like, bizarre and unnecessary, but... Again, it it almost has like a Twilight Zone twist at the end. Yeah, it's so Um, weird. (laughs) So, yeah, a little background on the movie. Yeah. Um, So this movie was created as part of a deal that Paramount struck with Jerry Lewis Productions, where he got $10 million plus 60% of the profits for 14 films over seven years. Two films a year for seven years, and he got 60% of the profits, including this film. Now, granted, that's a lot of movies for anyone, and right. maybe that that explains the quality. Um, uh, yeah. But that is a hell of a deal. Like $10 million in 1960s money, that's nothing to scoff at. Right. And 60% of the profits. Right. Unheard damn. of. And made him the highest paid individual Hollywood talent at the time. Damn. You know, <laughs> if you look at like his career, in a lot of ways, it kind of starts going downhill pretty much right after this. So he's kind of at the very peak of his uh, celebrity and his popularity right. in terms of the film part of his career. And wow, did he take advantage of it? So um, because this would have been shortly after the whole like because I this is the other thing I know about Jerry Lewis because my dad's a big fan of the Rat Pack for some reason. Okay, that he that he made all of these like buddy comedies with Dean Martin and like yeah. that was sort of where he like rose to fame was these movies that were literally just like road comedies. Not something that I would ever sit through. And I yeah. think my dad made me sit through one once and I was like, this is not funny at all. So yeah, he's obviously coming off the high of these very successful road comedies with Dean Martin, who was, you know, one of the biggest stars at the time. Right. And clearly milking it for all it's worth, which like, to his credit, good for you, dude. Like, Yeah, well, yeah, he knew how to strike a deal, if nothing else. And yeah, those movies, I think, were a similar sort of thing where it's like, you know, they had a deal, they produced a certain number a year, they just churned them out. Turned them out and people gobbled them up. Right, right. But, you know, some of these movies were where Jerry Lewis also started directing and writing and taking on more of that role. This one, in a lot of ways, is almost certainly the best of that set of 14 films. (laughs) And a lot of the other ones, I think, are pretty much forgotten. Some of the ones before this, I think, were still pretty influential, especially in France. And then the other thing, I guess, in terms of background is that before he took on this new deal, a lot of the films he was working on was with a guy named Frank Taschen, who was a director. And again, another person I didn't really know a whole lot about, but he had a background working on Looney Tunes and sort of in the animation world. And then also writing for like the Marx Brothers, Lucille Ball. And you could definitely see the influence of that, like in this movie, in the totally. sort of cartoony sensibilities, the slapstick comedy, yeah. um, all of that. So that kind of helped me understand a little bit where he's coming from. You know, in terms of performance, I had trouble finding the numbers, but right. it looks like it cost about $4.7 million to produce, oh, which wow. was considered large for the time. Yeah. And so it was made using some of Lewis's own money. Which, again, just for context for our audience, I think we we touched on this in the You Only Live Twice episode. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. No was made for like a million. 
So like for $4.7 million to make a relatively straightforward comedy and the first James Bond movie was made for a quarter of that. Like that does seem like a lot of money for what this is. Yeah, for sure. In terms of the gross, I've seen two numbers floating around. One which is about fourteen million, and the other one is nineteen million. So, okay, so you know, still made a fair amount of money uh, for the time. And he's making sixty percent of that. So again, yeah, kudos, right. kudos to Mr. Lewis. Right? Yeah, exactly. On a personal level, that's quite a bit of money. But you know, all that said, this movie does not crack the top twenty-five movies in terms of like ticket sales for the year of nineteen sixty-three. Okay. Even in terms of comedies. You have It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which is actually, you know, near the top of that ranking for the year and actually also features Jerry Lewis among many, many other... Many um, others, yeah. Yeah, comedic names. So, you know, it performed pretty well, but not great in the grand (laughs) scheme of things. Of course, you know, this movie was remade in 1996. That's my closest relation to this movie is I remember when that movie came out uh, starring Eddie Murphy. But you didn't see it. I I might have when it came out, but mm-hmm. I can't remember. At the very least, I've seen bits and pieces of it on yeah. TV and have pretty much no interest in revisiting it. Yeah, But yeah, Jerry Lewis was actually, I think, a producer on that movie because he always wanted to make a sequel, but settled for a remake with Eddie Murphy. Supposedly, he was also supposed to have a cameo in the movie, but I read, and again, you know, who knows how true this is, but supposedly he was dissatisfied with the uh, number of fart jokes in the script and decided (laughs) to not appear in the movie. Ultimately, I think he was actually kind of disappointed in the remake. You know, he was super full of himself. So in various interviews, he would say things like, well, you know, the original was perfect. And so, you know, no matter how good the remake is, it would always be, you know, less than, which is like, wow. Yeah, I mean, I think this this is one of those movies, as I was watching it, I kept thinking context is probably really important. And I think it's probably really unfair to be judging it by modern standards. Like there is an argument to be made that funny is funny. And if something is truly funny, it will always be funny. But I have to imagine that at the time, this was probably unlike anything people had seen before. Like maybe it was uproariously funny to a 1960s audience. But I just, I don't know. Are they are they seeing Buddy Love and being like, I don't buy this. Like, that, that's that's Jerry Lewis. Or are they like, oh, wow, like, he's pulling this off. I don't think, anyway, based on, like, my reading. He wasn't like a Peter Sellers type where he really was this chameleon who could kind of do anything. Like, he kind of seemed to be like a one-trick pony. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I feel like going into this, I didn't really want to watch it because it was like, oh, this is going to be one of those movies. Like, this is going to be a bit of a slog. So I'm also not sure that I'm, like, judging it fairly. Like, I think I went into it with some baggage. And, you know, our our high school film teacher, I remember we were watching Walkabout. And I hated it. <laughs> and I couldn't really put my finger on why I hated it. But it was after talking with him about it. And I was like, well, I was kind of like, the book was this. And I was expecting this. And then it ended up being this. And it was, like, super art housey and weird and surreal. And he said, well, you wanted cake. And what you got was pie. And they're both dessert, but it's not the dessert you wanted. And therefore, you're unhappy. And so I wonder if it's this is a similar case of just like, it just wasn't what I wanted it to be. And therefore, Mm -hmm. I was never going to be able to judge it fairly. I don't know. But yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the context of the time, I mean, from what I was reading, the thing that sort of was new and different about this movie is that 
it introduced pathos into the formula. Right. Right. And maybe like the stuff that I like the least about this movie are the scenes that are like literally just thrown in for the gags and actually don't contribute to the character, don't contribute to the story. Yeah. And like that's very out of fashion now. Right. And actually, I think this movie was new for the time because it did have more characters building and the the character was actually, you know, supposed to be kind of touching or you're supposed to feel for them. And it wasn't just about the laughs. Well, it's so funny because the other thing I wrote in my notes was that this feels like an SNL bit that has been dragged out to a feature. And like (laughs) Saturday Night Live did that a lot where they would be like, okay, everybody loves this sketch. Let's make a movie of it. It's like, well, it works as a three minute sketch. It doesn't work as a 90 minute movie. And this really feels like that to me. Like it feels like the nutty professor is a character that is the means for a setup for a joke then you have the joke, and then you would move on to something else. Almost like Professor Frank. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're going to get into that. But it, and it's so funny because you should, the reason I'm also bringing this up now is because for you to say, like, these, these jokes that are just sort of throwaway jokes and don't forward the plot, the other thing it really reminded me of was Will Ferrell movies. And I, I maybe I'm going to, you know, alienate half our audience, but... I don't particularly like any of Will Ferrell's movies because they feel exactly like what I just said. Like, I love Will Ferrell on SNL because I think he works as a humorous character for a three-minute sketch. But when that is drawn out for 90 minutes to two hours, because for whatever reason, comedies now are also two hours for some reason. Like, comedy should never be... 90 minutes and you're out. 80 <laughs> minutes is being generous. But those Will Ferrell movies where it's where it's very clear that they set up the camera and like, just improvise something and we're going to film it and we think it's right. hilarious and everything is padded out. Like, that's how this really kind of felt to me. It's, you're right that there is more character to this and, and, and you know, I don't want to jump to the end, but I will say that the final speech of the film is actually, I think, the film's highlight. It's where it kind of won me over almost at the mm-hmm. end. Because it was so honest, after all of this, like, cartoonish, surreal silliness, to have this moment of, like you said, pathos, where, like, the character opens up and talks about how it's difficult to be, like, the nerd. And I was like, oh, this movie actually has, like, a little bit of heart to it if you get past everything else. Yeah, no, all of that, I think, is fair. So let's dive into it. Let's dig into it. Um, and let's just start with the nutty professor himself as a character. I mean, why not? So, uh, you know, obviously we both have our problems with this character, but overall, Adam, d- did you find the Dr. Kelp bit funny or, and same with Buddy Love, or was it annoying right off the bat? Did it just overstay its welcome? What do you think? I mean, again, the context is important. And so obviously for our generation, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, it's Professor Frank. Like, that, right. you hear that voice, the Jerry Lewis voice. And that was terrible. But you hear that Jerry Lewis voice, and immediately you go, oh, it's it's Professor Frank. And so immediately you're kind of taken out of it because you're like, it's this other thing for us. Yeah. Even though this is the thing that inspired the other thing. So it's this weird, like, dog chasing its own tail kind of thing. But no, like, I didn't find him funny. I do really like physical comedy, like not just slapstick, but like 
visual gags and physical comedy. You know, I love the work of Edgar Wright, who I think yeah. today does some of the best visual slash physical gags out there. Like Scott Pilgrim has some beautiful kind of gags. Right. So what comes to mind is the scene when he goes into the dean of the college or whatever, his office, and he's like sitting in the chair and then he sort of like sinks in and then he like props himself. Like so right. there's some like funny visual, like it should have been funnier than it was though. I don't know. Like if it was lacking like a sound effect or there was just something about it that I was like, I know that this is supposed to be funny, but it's not working for me. That's kind of how I felt about the character across the board is like, I know that I should be laughing at this, but I just, I don't, I'm not like, I'm not finding him humorous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I kind of feel the same way. There were like a few moments that stood out to me that were really funny, but I think probably the most interesting part of this character for me is just the question of like, there's an autobiographical aspect to this, right? Right. And it's always been a little bit enigmatic exactly what he's drawing on here, but particularly with Buddy Love, there's always been speculation that Buddy Love is either a specific member of the Rat Pack whether yeah. it's whether it's his former comedy musical partner Dean Martin, or who he famously had a falling out. Yes, with. right. So is this re- revenge of some sort? Is it Frank Sinatra? Right, could be yeah. also inspired by Frank Sinatra. In interviews, Lewis would always say, "No, no, no. It's not any of those people. It's just an amalgam of like all of the jerks I've ever met, all of the Hollywood hipsters I've ever met." Yeah. he was adamant about that. But I think. For my money, uh, you know, a couple people, have, uh, of course, have pointed this out before, but have just said it's actually just like a dark side of himself in a lot of right. ways. And knowing more now about like who Jerry Lewis is, in retrospect, I think that seems like a pretty good bet. I was reading some interviews and um, investigations about Jerry Lewis, um, and I just wanted to like read a couple quotes here because I feel like they really speak to where mm-hmm. this is all coming from. So. There's a 1982 interview with Rolling Stone called something like, What's So Funny About Jerry Lewis? And the interviewer goes to his enormous house, which I believe is actually Tara from Gone with the Wind. Oh, shit. No way. (laughs) Um, And so he he goes in and, you know, immediately the thing that he's sort of struck with is that Jerry Lewis is trying to be taken very seriously. Right. 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 And all the he is like surrounded by all these yes people that are kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jerry Lewis, you know, yeah, oh, nodding and, you know, being very serious. No, the French love him. He's right. a genius. Right. And like, I'm sure he gobbled that up. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that, that Jerry says to the interviewer is he says, it's a very fine line I walk, uh, but if you're schizophrenic, which I am, it's fine. I can sit here and talk to you about Jerry Lewis all day long and tell you everything I know about him. And I probably know more than anyone. Good, bad, negative, positive, the highs, the lows, all of it. Which is the way I look at him. He is Hmm. another faction. And so the interview goes on from there, but he talks about like when he was younger, he used to get made fun of in high school. All of the kids in high school used to call him the idiot. Because he would make jokes and funny voices and all this kind of stuff, right? Right. And over time, he really saw the idiot as this separate person that was like the person on set. He talks about literally, as the director of the movie, writing notes for the actor, Jerry Lewis, (laughs) and having them sent through a PA to himself on set, right? I mean, again, who knows? Take take it all with a grain of salt. But 
he tells the interviewer that he actually went to therapy and asked the therapist, do I have a split personality? Who knows how true any of this is, right? Number one, he's a comedian, but also he seems full of tall tales. Um, but there was definitely at least this, either a persona he's selling or a true belief that he has these sort of two very drastic sides. One of them is the sort of goofball on set mm -hmm. that's kind of geeky and falling all over the place and all this kind of stuff. And then there's the very serious, very put together Jerry Lewis, right? Who's the businessman. Well, what's really interesting, because you texted me a couple hours ago before we did this, before we started recording, and you sort of referenced Jim Carrey and the goofiness of these early comedies and then sort of transitioning into more serious work, because eventually Jerry Lewis would go on to make like movies with Martin Scorsese, famously. And it's so funny, because as you're describing this, I'm thinking of Jim Carrey. Right. Because that seems to be exactly the kind of person that Jim Carrey was uh, speaking from experience of having, um, I personally didn't interview him, but I was present for an interview. What was so surprising to me was when he was in the room doing the interview and with the crew, he was totally normal. He was, I will say to his credit, one of the most polite, kindest people I've met. He shook everybody's hand. He asked everybody their name when he left he shook everybody's hand and remembered everybody's name. Like I was very surprised by just like how kind and normal he was considering he was at one point, like when we were kids, like Jim Carrey was the biggest comedy movie star there was. Right. But as soon as he left the interview suite and was present amongst the rest of the office, he instantly turned into the clown and was goofing off and like being the Jim Carrey that we've all seen when he's on camera, these kind of guys, they create this on-screen persona, but then become so associated with that on-screen persona that they then sort of have to adopt the on-screen persona when they're not even on screen, but that's not really who they are. And then they kind of get lost in the character. So yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because like you, you had made that connection to Jim Carrey before, but like now saying that it seems even more right. accurate. Right. That's, well, yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, the contrast there, too, is that, like, Jim Carrey's sort of clown character often was also a jerk, right? Mm -hmm. I think yeah. about Liar Liar, I think about The Mask, all of these movies where Dumb and Dumber, clown, yeah, like, yeah, where he's actually, Ventura, like, yeah, he literally is, he's, he's funny, but he's kind of, he's a jerk, yeah. Right, and, and I think the contrast is that Jerry Lewis's clown is often childlike, and kind of yeah, the butt of the joke. Right. And the butt of the joke. And so whereas his serious side is actually the jerk. Right. And so, you know, that brings me to the second article that I was reading, which was actually released this year in Vanity Fair, which was an investigation by the same folks who have been following a lot of the sort of Me Too stories into sexual assault allegations against Jerry Lewis. Mm. And it's a you know, another pretty horrifying story. Uh, I think yeah. eight women came forward for the story, a couple of them talking about specific sexual assault allegations Thanks. and then others about sexual harassment. But I thought this line really stood out to me as well. Uh, maybe audiences mistook Lewis for the pratfalling fool he played on screen, all crossed eyes, broad jokes and desperate attention vying. But many in Hollywood knew he was cantankerous, difficult and cruel, an insecure egomaniac with an all consuming sex drive. Which wow. actually, which is horrifying, but also really actually matches this movie in a kind of yeah. crazy way, in a disturbing kind of way. Yeah. And so 
how self-consciously did he write this role? Because Buddy Love, if you haven't seen the movie, right? If you just kind of heard the story of like what the movie is, Mm -hmm. you might think Buddy Love is going to be this kind of, you know, even the French description, right? They make it out like Buddy Love is going to be this really kind of likable, suave character, right? Don Juan, right? Mm -hmm. But actually, he's an aggressive... um, He's a dick. He's a dick. And and he's a dick to women in the movie, too. In my notes, I literally have... Buddy is a dick and then like dick like highlighted because yeah and this comes back to the yeah. problem I had I guess it was Planet of the Apes where I sort of said like <laughs> I can't connect with these characters because they're assholes and like yeah that's a problem like if this is your main character I'm supposed to connect with them and it's not in like an anti-hero kind of way and again I, I do think that this is you know modern sensibilities looking back on an- a different era we know from shows like Mad Men and certainly stuff of the era the way men treated women was very different back then from how we treat them now. And not that's not to excuse that kind of behavior, but that was the behavior that was commonplace at the time. And it was sort of like seen as like, again, the Rat Pack kind of like, oh, yeah, you, you could be the smooth duck and kind of a dick to a lady. And like that was OK. And I imagine that, to, in fact, I know from based on what Lewis said after the fact, he's like, I kind of wish I had made Buddy Love more evil. Because Even he says, I got, yeah. I got more fan mail addressed to Buddy than I did to Kelp, Kelp because, yeah. because like, people found him, you know, kind of charming and, like, ooh, the bad boy. Like, whereas, again, w- tying it back to, like, the James Bond thing, it's, like, watching those old James Bond movies now is really cringy, but, like, at the time, that would have been seen as, like, very cool. Right. You kind of have to watch it within the context of the time. Yeah, he probably was seen as very suave and debonair and cool because, like, that was... But, like, he's not. He's a dick. Yeah. He's, a, he's a straight-up dick. I think Lewis was trying to write him as a dick. You know, like, yes, I, I think, I, I think I, he, I agree, I think he was trying to be uh, critical of that kind of macho bullshit. But at the same time, of course, like, he clearly engaged in it as well. In some ways, it might be kind of like a, a, a self-hating mm-hmm. character that he wrote. On the other hand, maybe we're giving him too much credit by saying that. I I will say, though, like knowing because I hadn't heard about the sexual assault allegations prior to our our conversation today. And I will say that that certainly I imagine if you knew that it would color your viewing of the film. Oh, yeah. Considerably. It adds a new layer to it, because like you said, for him to be like, oh, no, I'm just being every like asshole I've ever met. It's like, well, maybe there's more to it than that. Yeah. Well, and especially because we have the love interest character, Stella. Right. Mm -hmm. And she sees both of the characters throughout. And kind of from the very beginning, you get the sense that she probably likes Professor Kelp. Right. Yeah. She's she certainly. Maybe not flirtatious, but she's no, but she's, she's she's sweet to him when everybody else is is not. And she says things about him to other people that you're like, yeah. oh, she like likes this guy, uh, but but Professor Kelp can't see it because he doesn't like himself, and she hates Buddy Love from the very very beginning, and talks about like why he's an asshole and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and she doesn't totally ever get one over to Buddy Love, but I think that she keeps saying things like, you know, he has something. There's something there. Right. And she can't quite put her finger on it. And I think the idea is that what she's seeing is Professor Kelp shining through. Right. On some level, that's what she's actually attracted to in Buddy Love. But so the weird thing is about all of this is that if it is a sort of autobiographical role, it's sort of like Jerry Lewis is saying that he really likes the clown more than he likes the real Jerry Lewis. Right. Right. And like, you know, anyway, so that's a whole thing. 
but what did you think about Stella? Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was an interesting role for, again, sort of of the era because she has a little bit more agency than these characters normally would. She's questioning of Buddy Love, which perhaps would not normally be the case in these kind of movies. You know, like, she's not the best written character, but yeah. again, I think it's like, it's the context of the time. Like, I think it was just like, she's probably well-written for a 1960s female lead, but by today's standards, not so much. I didn't love her, but I didn't hate her. To be honest, it was just like, I was so uninterested in this film for the most part that it was hard to like care about anybody. And I did find that fantasy sequence like a little creepy. Yeah. Like, again, watching today, it's just like, ooh, this is a little leery and male gazy but um yeah i don't I, I don't know like i she's no she's no Allie from the karate kid let's put it that way right and she's certainly no nancy from nightmare on elm street but yeah, yeah. she's she's good yeah yeah well fair enough fair enough but i did i did read that the, he basically started having an affair with her and they were together for some time i saw that too but i couldn't find a lot of corroborating evidence of that but oh, okay but uh, but you never know i mean a lot of this stuff I'm kind of taking with a grain of salt at this point. But um, one thing I did read that, well, actually, I, I saw an interview with her where she talked about this, I think. Um, after this movie in 1966, she was actually in a movie with Dean Martin <laughs> ah. called The mm. Silencers. Um, and after Cherry was found out that they were in a film together, he decided not to speak to her for 20 years. 20 Holy years. Shit. So, 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 yeah, um, there's a pattern okay. here. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I think overall her, her character was surprising to me. I was not expecting her to have so much to say about what was going on. Absolutely. And I so, would agree with that. You know, I kind of I kind of appreciated that part of her character. But then, you know, it's that classic thing where early in the movie, she's questioning, she's smart, she seems like a really put together person, and then at the end she just like happily kind of gives it all up and marries the professor. And that's classic. Not only that, in the totally bizarre friggin epilogue where his dad shows up and starts selling the tonic like grandpa simpson yes <laughs> she meets professor kelp outside and they're like let's just go let's go get married or whatever and then as they're walking away she like turns and winks at the camera and you see that she has two bottles of the tonic <laughs> as if to imply even though she spent the entire movie hating buddy love she stole some of this so that she could like when she needed to like get a little bit of buddy like yeah, it's it's, it's again, very mixed it's just messages like, all around. Yeah, it's just I'm hey, like, maybe what? she's going to drink some. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe that's the idea. I don't know. So let's. Did you have any favorite gags throughout the movie? I mean, again, this is a comedy. So were there any mm-hmm. moments that that you did actually really enjoy, or was it all kind of a slog? <laughs> no, I the the gag that I did genuinely chuckle at is after so. Uh, he's conducting an experiment for his class and then he causes an explosion and everybody's upset. And then someone, it's like the secretary or something, like arrives at the classroom. Professor Kelp, are you all right? And if you are, where are you all right? And is like, Dr. Kelp, Dr. Kelp, are you okay? Where are you? Where are you? And then all of a sudden she hears a knock at the door. And the door is like lying on the ground and she's standing on it. So she hears a knock at the door and she steps off and she opens the door, which has fallen onto the ground. And Dr. Kelp is lying embedded in the concrete. And he's like, ah, hello. I used too much. That did genuinely make me laugh. Like that, it's, it's a very cartoony, like very Bugs Bunny visual gag. Yeah. 
Um, and that's his entrance in the movie, right? That's the yeah, that's your introduction the to the character. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. well-timed. That was a great gag. And then another, like, it's a very surreal moment, but a very memorable moment is after he's working out and then he's carrying the barbell and then he, he drops it and then it cuts to a wide shot and it's completely, like, stretched his arms out to the ground. Right. And then the next scene is, like, he's in bed and his his feet are at the end of the bed, but also his hands are at the end of the bed because they still obviously have an unstretched and he's, like, scratching his feet. And it's, like, it's it's a very surreal and weird joke. Yeah. But it's memorable. And I was like, okay, that's clever. Like, kudos. Yeah. credit. And the, credit the effects in that scene are pretty good. I mean, yeah, I will say, like, it looks really good. Yeah. It, it worked, like, they sell it very well. Yeah. But it's also, it's one of these weird things where it's, like, Live action cartoons never really work. And yeah, I think the thing is that you have to set up the rules really quickly. Yeah. And they yeah. and they hadn't really set up that this is a world where something like that can happen. So when it happened, I was like, what the hell? Is yeah, he okay? Exactly. And, and that was my initial reaction instead of it being like, oh, haha, you know, the barbell's heavy. It stretched out his arms. It like took a second to be like, uh, I don't know. Is this, is, does that happen in this world? Yeah, and there's, like, a couple other scenes where they do somewhat similar, like, cartoonish yeah. level visual gags. Like, certainly the transformation sequence is kind of cartoony, although also kind of, like, scary. weirdly scary. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's not, like, yeah, it's not like Who Framed Roger Rabbit where you're sort of establishing right off the bat, we are, we are living within a cartoon world and we can get away with doing, like, live-action cartoon gags. Like, it felt out of place, but, like, very memorable. But, yeah, what about you? Were there other... There other gags that like you thought worked yeah particularly I, well i really liked the uh the dance scene at the end I that th- was very funny there yes, were a I couple would... of really good moments in that scene the like really really long shot of just julius kelp like standing there listening to the music and then not being able to stop himself from dancing and just yes, all the was... various dance moves he does that that's that's pretty funny and i think that was actually maybe parodied in um or back to the future yeah back to the future exactly yeah um, very different character doing it at first, but and, and and again, watching Back to the Future, I'm just assuming George McFly is just a weird dancer, right? Not realizing that it's actually a reference to the Night Professor. So right, right, exactly. And then you know the other the other great gag I think in that scene is he's talking to Stella, and it's quite a tight shot. And um, at one point, it pulls back, and he's wearing a white tux, and he has put his arm like elbow deep in in a bowl of punch so it's like you know bright pink and just the way that that um is is shot and you know the the pulling back and everything and the timing of it i thought was really really funny that that was i think possibly the only part of the movie where i i actually laughed out loud and see it's so funny because i had to rewind because i was like did i miss something that's one of the things i noticed about this was that it felt like the kind of gags that were eventually refined and very much the kind of gags you would see in the Simpsons, yeah. but done better. Mm-hmm. Like they figured out the way to like time them and deliver them and shoot them in a manner where the gags actually feel like they're set up in punchline. Whereas for whatever reason, a lot of them, I think that's part of why they kept falling flat for me was like, there was just something about the way that they were, I don't know, like edited or, or directed but it's just like something was missing, so it never hits properly. And that yeah. was one of those ones where it's just like, I was like, what the hell? Like his his arms in the punch? Like, did I miss him putting the arm? Like, wh- wh- how did this happen? But like, there are these gags and visual like humor that is very 
Simpson-esque. And I'm not surprised that this would have had an influence on it, but it's just like the Simpsons managed to refine it and, and do it better. Right. So. Well, and, and in, in a lot of ways, I do think that some of the stuff is more at home in cartoons. You mm-hmm. know, it's For sure. Because it's just you have so much control and, you know, the, the, the sort of rules of what you can and can't do are a little bit looser, you know. Well, like, you know, the, those pullback gags, that's a classic Simpson one. The one that comes to mind is when Homer meets George Harrison. <gasps> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where did you get that brownie? Right, <laughs> right, right there. There's a whole table of them, and like, like that's, but like that's the sort of like let's do the comedic reveal of not what you were expecting. But, right, right. But yeah, yeah. It, and and in the Simpsons, it would be like a crash zoom out. Like it'd be like yeah, exactly. Really, really not really as fast. not a slow reveal to right. oh, he has his, his his hand in the punch for some reason. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Exactly. But what else? Were there other things about the movie that you you did? actually you know enjoy yeah i mean i you know i thought that there were some cool audio visual things going on and again you know to the point of the french um <laughs> it is this kind of auteur thing where it's not just the cinematography it's not just the editing it's not just the production mm. design it's the way it all comes together and so you know like even from the opening credits right you get like this yeah. sort of laboratory setup and there's bright colors there's very colorful yeah bubbling and fire and whirling and all this kind of stuff all with like shots of the professor through the sort of setup and like that really sets the tone i think for the visual language of the of the film um yeah i was really struck by the transformation sequence he knocks over like a bunch of vials yeah and there's just like brightly colored paint on the ground and i i'm sure part of this is like oh we're shooting in technicolor like let's make sure we make everything and i know back in the day like technicolor had consultants that would be on set to sort of like advise you as to what colors would look good on their film stock and all this stuff so i imagine that's like part of it but yeah it was like this is a very bright very colorful film which again considering i thought it was in black and white i was very struck by but the, his use of color is very very interesting yeah and, and like the purple is it called the purple pit or whatever the right. name of the the club that they go to like again it's production design and it's like bright purple velour walls and stuff and it's just like it's unlike anything you would see and it's it is visually very impressive yeah it kind uh, of creates like uh, the film very much has a world to it mm-hmm, that is not much. quite our reality. Um, yeah. You know, everything's a little bit brighter, a little bit more cartoony. And I, I think that that that's whole visual language works really nicely. Um, I, the other thing that really stood out to me were, was there's a couple moments of um, like cutting on form that, that work really, really well. There are actually things that you see now in, in films by like Edgar Wright, for example, right. um, where, you know, there's the scene right after Stella first meets Buddy and he convinces her to go up to this sort of overlook of Los Angeles. And then he has to disappear at the last minute because he's transforming back into Dr. Kelp. And she's sort of left standing alone on the ridge looking confused. And then it's cuts from a, a shot of her face looking confused to a shot of her in the classroom. And then you're back into this next scene. And it's like, I feel like I've seen that exact cut in Edgar Wright films. Totally. Uh, and it's great. It's really, really, really well done. It, it's expeditious storytelling there's a similar sort of one where in that dance sequence um, at the end, Dr. Kelp, I think, decides to get get his like buddy formula. So he drinks the buddy formula and then he has this crazy scream. It's one of those like really bizarre, distorted screams. And then it cuts to to a trombone back at the band 
and it's this perfect like open mouth to trombone cut. Right. Um, I really, really love that. So there's some like there's some creative filmmaking going on in this movie. Yeah, the scene that you had actually written it in your notes and I wrote it in my notes was when um he comes into the school hungover and everything, like all the sound effects are like hyper like he's hyper aware of them and like it, it's really bothering him. And that immediately reminded me of one of my favorite scenes in All That Jazz. When Joe Gideon is basically about to have a heart attack during rehearsal and all of the sound sort of drops out and you just you hear every action that he's doing, there's sound design for and everything else going on in the room there isn't. And it's it's not exactly the same, but like immediately I was like, oh, this is like the the very stylized sound design to indicate this person's mental state. I've, I've seen that done again in other film, yeah. films that I very highly regard. Totally. Um, and I thought that was, I, it was like, oh, it's interesting to see it at play in, in, in this. Yeah, and they're using like really interesting sort of like Foley stuff. Like mm-hmm. I feel like the chalk sound was actually maybe like a, a kettle whistling. Stuff yeah. Like that, that's like, or maybe a train whistling or something like that. It was this really interesting sort of playing with sound stuff. So like that stuff is the stuff that I respect the most in a lot of ways. And totally. I'm like, this was he was playing with stuff, and I'll, I'll give him that. It's been pretty recognized that that Jerry Lewis had a big impact on filmmaking. Um, in yep. a movie that he did just a couple years before this called The Bell Boy, he actually basically invented uh, a, a, a new technique on set. It's called video assist. Basically, you can use um, video footage that's being taken of of what you're shooting live on set and actually see it on set, which couldn't be done. Yeah, for those who aren't sort of familiar with the way it works, you know, today, obviously, we shoot, uh, some people shoot on film, but uh, more commonly, you shoot on video, and so you can have a direct feed to the, so the director can actually see what the camera is seeing, and it's very clear, and you know exactly what you're getting, and you can also review the take once you've said cut and you've stopped rolling, but back at this era, you're shooting on film, and film has to be developed, so a Essentially, once you shot something, you wouldn't know until the next day when you got your dailies whether or not the take was any good. And so what basically, apparently, and I I didn't realize this, but this is, you know, pretty impressive. Jerry Lewis came up with this idea of like, what if we use a video camera and we sort of attach it to our camera and then we can immediately, as soon as we, you know, say cut, we can then look back on the instant video take. It's not going to be as high resolution or whatever. But we can sort of I can review my performance and make sure I I did okay because again, as to your point, like he's directing and acting in the scene at the same time. So he's not even able to really see what he's doing. So he has to come up with this method and and, and that is revolutionary. Yeah. I mean, it completely changes the way films are made from that point forward. Yeah. And it's really interesting too to me because it is very much like an actor's filmmaking technique. Like yeah. it's something that as an actor you would care a lot about, if you, especially totally. if you don't have a director telling you whether you need to adjust your performance or how um, to be able to actually see your performance immediately afterward. Um, wow. That would be, that would just make such a huge difference. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. And then of course he actually went on to uh, teach film at university of Southern California in LA. And one of his students was George Lucas. <laughs> and then also uh, George's friend, uh, Steven Spielberg would sometimes sit in on the class. So Wow. You know, you can you can understand why this guy has kind of this long shadow in terms of filmmaking as well as generally being an asshole. 
Um, so, so yeah, I, you know, it makes sense that the, the, the filmmaking is pretty impressive in some ways in this movie, even though it doesn't necessarily all hang together as a film. Yeah, one, one of the things I found interesting about the film was, and it feels very of the period, was the musical numbers. Yeah. That really kind of were superfluous, but, like, also, again, knowing the people he used to hang out, the Rat Pack, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the original Ocean's Eleven, uh, but there are a shocking amount of musical numbers in that <laughs> casino heist movie. But uh, personally, I did not care for the musical numbers because, but again, I, by that point, I was just like, "What? Like, when is this thing going to be over?" And like now, we're dragging it out so he could sing me a, a jazz standard. But it's interesting because as I was reading the trivia, I think there already was one before, but they're currently developing a Nutty Professor musical. Hmm. And it's going to have the last score written by Marvin Hamlish, who is perhaps, well, to musical theater people, he's best known as writing the score to a chorus line, but to film nerds, he's probably best known as being the guy who adapted all the ragtime music for The Sting. Mm, Okay. Yeah, he's that guy. So anyway, he passed away recently, and so this is apparently like the last score that he wrote before passing. But I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know, as much as I didn't enjoy this movie it would make a really great musical. Yeah, it could. Because, again, comedy, I think, and this is part of it, like, comedy works so much better with an audience. Yeah. You know, you play off of what other people laugh at, and the more people that start laughing, the more you start laughing. And when you're just by yourself, it you never get the same effect watching a comedy when it's just one person. Yeah. But, so, to that point, I think this is one of those movies that definitely would have benefited from seeing with an audience, or us being able to watch it in the same room together, mm-hmm. even just the two of us. But I think a lot of these things that don't necessarily work as well because they're cartoonish or feel out of place in a musical where your suspension of disbelief is so different and you can like break out into song. I was like, actually, you know what? Like, I think this would make a really good musical. Like those weird random musical numbers will feel more in place. But just like the sort of over the top silliness, you can be more theatrical and it won't feel at odds with the sort of reality of what we're seeing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not saying it necessarily will work, but I was just like, oh, it's interesting that they're doing that because to me, I could see this working really, really well yeah. on stage as a like big showy Broadway musical. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely see that. And, you know, like for me, much like a lot of the movie, the the musical numbers just overstayed their welcome. Like yes. that first one where he's singing that old black magic, I was into that. I was like, you know, just like his performance is really good. Like, yeah, I, he's, yes, he's you I, know I just his with mannerisms. That. Like, he, you know, he has kind of a rubber face, of course, and so you know the way his mouth is kind of moving side to side as he's singing, and just that how like percussive the the music is. I think is really great. But then there's like another like five <laughs> musical numbers that are kind of short and not that interesting. Um, so I feel like, you know, if you just had that one in this movie, that would be kind of great. Um, but then it just goes on too long. So and, Well, it's yeah. funny too, because because musicals have like, so the, the structure of musicals, like there's always this thing called the I Wish song. And if you watch like, certainly if you watch like Disney movies, they all have them. Like right. Ariel singing Part of Your World. Like these this, this idea that there's the song where the main character is going to say, this is what I wish I had. And by the end of the musical, they're going to get it. Right. And that's what this needed. You needed, if you had Professor Kelp basically singing a song where he says, God, I wish I wasn't such a nerd. Like, it sort of kind of sets up the whole 
obvious, like, and that's kind of the thing that's lacking here is like, yes, they established that he's being bullied and that's why he goes to the gym and all this stuff, but his transformation didn't feel motivated. So I, you know, I kind of disagree on that. So, so I think that there's actually, this is like one of the few things in the script that I think really worked for me. There's like these two parallel lines that happen in the script. The first one's probably about halfway through the movie, which again, it probably could have happened earlier. Um, but it's in the scene where Stella and Buddy Love are kind of interacting for the first time. And they're having, they have this patter going back and forth where she's basically being like, you're an asshole. And he has this line where he says, Well, honey, I always say, if you're good and you know it, why waste time beating around a bush, true? And Stella says, And I always say that to love yourself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. And after watching you... I know that you and you will be very happy together. Hmm. Right. And in that context of the scene, she's basically saying, like, I don't want to be with you. You're an asshole. Enjoy the company of yourself if you love yourself so much. Right. Right. But by the end of the movie, there's this parallel line that Julius Kelp says. You might as well like yourself. Just think about all the time you're going to have to spend with you. Julius Kelp, you know, tries to create this character of Buddy Love because he doesn't like himself. And totally. but Buddy Love loves himself, right? <laughs> and and like only cares about himself. And that's kind of the only thing in some ways that Buddy Love has going for him and his looks, I guess. But he's a total prick. And I think the the message of the movie, whether you agree with it or not, is Julius Kelp has a lot going for him. The thing that's missing is that he doesn't like himself. But see, I think I think you're right. The problem is that we're not really getting that until basically halfway, halfway through the movie. Yeah. Like, the first act just sort of sets up, oh, he's being kind of bullied by his students, which, his students that look like rejects from Rydell High in Greece. Like, I don't know why, like, all of these people are, like, 45 years old. Yeah, 45 and very, like, coiffed, good-looking, fit people. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, is this a high school, a college, or, like, where, like, yeah, but that's just also, that's just movie making at the time. But, yeah, that is a very interesting parallel, which I, I definitely missed, but... I think it's it's just it's because it's coming so late. Part of this is just that 60s style of writing and pacing and everything. Um, but yeah, it's just like structurally it didn't the whole film didn't really. Yeah, I think the, the one thing I did like from the structure standpoint was the first like 30 minutes of the movie are just basically making you feel bad for this character. And I, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I like like that in and of itself, but it, it was interesting and it sort of culminates in the transformation scene where, you know, it's like it kind of just goes is going downhill, right? For the first, like, 30 minutes, it's kind of just getting worse and worse for him. Gets, like, mm-hmm. stuffed in a closet. He goes to the gym and fails at kind of being able to, you know, whatever, improve his physique and all this kind of stuff. And then he kind of takes this extreme step of trying to create this formula to make himself a better person. And... At first, he turns into a monster. He's kind of turning into Mr. Hyde, right? This sort of like yeah, uh, literally ugly yeah. creature that's like... And it's a long scene. He's changing colors, writhing around on the ground, breaking all of his stuff, throwing things, all that. Growing Robin Williams levels of Harry. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's pretty intense. And it kind of feels like rock bottom, right? You hit rock bottom. And then again, this is another really cool piece of filmmaking you cut from him like writhing around on the ground. He's white as a sheet at this point. And then it cuts to this point of view shot where you're like in a completely different setting. You're Mm -hmm. you're talking to this like menswear 
guy, and then it turns around and walks through this street scene, everyone's staring at you. You kind of think, okay, he must have transformed. He's out in public. People are seeing him and are like, what's going on? And then he goes into the Purple Pit, and it's revealed, of course, that he's Buddy Love. And he's the, now he's the suave, quaffed Jerry Lewis and not Julius Kelp anymore. And what did you think of that reveal? Did you like that? Because I, I hated it. What, okay, because, oh, okay. Yeah, because it's doing that thing that I hate when movies do, which is where they cheat, where they're doing something only to screw with the audience that in the reality of the world they would never do because everybody's staring at him as if he's this homunculus. Right. And then like he walks into the club and the it literally everybody stops. The music stops. The cigar girl drops all of her cigarettes onto the ground. Like he's handsome, but he's not that handsome that that would be the reaction of everybody. <laughs> he is wearing a like bright blue suit. But yes, he is wearing a very cool suit that I would definitely like to wear. But like beyond that, yeah, yeah. I, so it's just like no, I, I I hear what you're saying. It feels a little bit artificial. It's just so contrived. Yeah. And like again, I, I get that it's a comedy, and like maybe I shouldn't care that much, and I'm I'm just being unnecessarily harsh. But I just like and it goes on for so long. No, like, I, I get that. I I I agree about the sort of reality of the film that there, it's kind of a, a bit of a cheap move. It's mostly like just that moment of filmmaking where you cut to the point of view shot, which again, it's, it doesn't happen within the anywhere else in the film. It's kind of outside the language of the film. It's very disorienting. You don't know where you are, and you just watch this horrible thing happen, and you don't see where that character has gone. Right? Like yeah. you don't know where they are when you first cut to that shot. All of the just that moment of disorientation, I thought was a really cool magic trick. But then they, yeah. but then yeah, they, they I, I agree. It's a little sloppy in the, in the way that that scene plays out. But I think that's my like that's my overall criticism with this film is that it's like it has interesting ideas. It just needs the tightening. I don't know what it is. It's just not refined yet. It's like there are ideas here that other filmmakers, other comedians, other writers sort of took and ran with and then managed to refine and do so much better that once you know the sort of refined version, when you go back and watch the original, it just feels like it's it, it's not there yet. Right. And and that like but that scene, it's a cool idea that could be executed so well, but it just it almost goes on too long and too over the top and too ridiculous. And the final like the reveal of him is like a cool zoom. And like you say, he's dressed in this very arresting very bright, colorful to that art sort of color point outfit. It just took way too long to get there. I don't know. Like it's maybe I'm being overly hard on this, this movie. I, I, but well, you know, but like once it, once it's sort of uh, betrayed your trust, it's hard to forgive the rest of the yeah. film. Even if it's just like little things, you're already honed in on the flaws, you know? And so I, I, I get that. We touched on the ending a little bit. So I kind of want to just let's go there now because sure. we're sort of near the end of the film anyway. I shouldn't say the ending necessarily, the climax, like the the big reveal where everybody finds out that Buddy Love is actually Julius Kelp. Yeah. And he's he starts untransforming. And there are some good filmmaking techniques to basically allow him to detransform or retransform or whatever. Redorculate. You redorculate on screen. You know, yes, they're hiding it through some cutaways to the audience and to Stella specifically, but I thought that was really good. And then, uh, like I said, his monologue there, I did actually find very touching and heartwarming. And I empathized with him for the first time, perhaps the entire movie. Credit where credit is due. I I think that worked really, 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 really well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I I, I like that moment. And then they slap on a whole other ending 
that is yeah. just kind of like I think probably the thinking there was that you know Jerry Lewis is thinking, but this is a comedy. We need a gag at the end, and so but it's not even a like it's not even a funny gag. No, it's a really it's dumb like, gag that kind of like blows up the heart of the movie, right? And maybe I'm missing something, but like my understanding is that his mother was abusive towards his father. And so his father created this potion that then makes him less so abusable. Yeah. And then at the end of the film, he's continued to drink that. And the mother no longer is abusive. And the dad is the asshole. And I was unclear kind of at the time. I was like, wait, so was that dream sequence earlier in the film? Was that him misremembering and his mom wasn't an asshole? I know. I know. I, I there was the, there were a bunch of like plot things work. that didn't totally compute for me, but like. At some point, and this is the thing I missed, but he sent his formula to his parents. So oh. when the bird eats his formula, this is like a whole yeah. plot point. Yeah, yeah. Yep, it sure is. Yeah. It's really dumb. But the bird eats his formula, and then he calls his parents to get the formula back. So it's implied, I guess, that okay. he sent it to them. The dad made the formula and drank it. So he he's he's his buddy love his own version of buddy uh, love. Okay, I thought it was like a family secret. Yeah. Like a again, maybe it's just because of the Simpsons thing. I thought it was Grandpa Simpsons revitalizing tonic, and so he was. There are definite. There are some shades of that episode in this, and I don't think yes, I've ever very, seen that connection totally drawn out. But it's got strong vibes of that yeah. episode. Even the way that the that the dad comes into the class to start selling yes. the tonic is like right out of that episode. So yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, well, maybe that's a, it's a dumb gay. It's, it's a very dumb gay. But maybe that is a good segue into one of our favorite segments, which is the parts that seem like Simpson jokes that aren't. Yeah, let's do it. What were what were some of the things that came to mind for you? I mean, again, like there's so many cartoony visuals and slapsticky humor that is very Simpsons esque. Yeah. But what are some of the other less on the nose Simpsons things? For sure. Well, so one of the things that I liked, and again, this is like very much filmmaking of the era and just the, the weird morality of Hollywood at the time. But all of those students who look like they're 45 uh, <laughs> are at the bar drinking tall glasses of milk. <laughs> yep. That was like one of those bizarre details that I was like, you know, couldn't they just have been drinking like water or I don't know. It would have been less in your face if it wasn't milk. Um, but, but it felt very kind of like something that the Simpsons would poke fun at. Um, what about you? Was there, was there other than the things we've already mentioned, was there something that stood out to you? Well, when he asked for the Alaskan polar bear drink and like the, the recipe where he's like, okay, first I want like a shot of vodka and then I some gin and then like a little more vodka and then top it up with a little more scotch and like a shot of vermouth, a shot of vermouth, a shot of gin, a little gin, a little brandy, a little brandy, lemon peel, a lemon peel, orange peel, some orange peel, cherry, some more scotch, some more scotch. Now mix it nice, then pour it into a tall glass. Right. Like that whole sequence. And then especially like the, he's like, the bartender's like, oh, I want to try this. And he's like, mm. and then he just like knocks him over for some reason. Right. Like that felt very Simpsons-y. You can certainly see the, the influence on the show beyond just the like Professor Frank element. Right. But it's like, you know, the thing is too, that it's like a lot of the, the influences they're drawing from are also influences that Jerry Lewis had from other things too, like yes. vaudeville and, you know, cartoons and other sort of slapstick comedians of the time. So it's like they're, you know, it's partly that they're drawing from Jerry Lewis probably, but it's also partly that they're drawing from the same things that Jerry Lewis is drawing from. 
Yeah, this feels like a movie, and I don't know, and I didn't see this in the research, but this feels like a movie that Conan O'Brien would really, really like. <laughs> like, it seems very much like his kind of weird humor, because he is kind of like a nutty professor type character, at least that, like, his shtick is kind of that. Right. So I I, I would be curious what how Conan ranks this film amongst his influences. Yeah, so. that's a good point. Why don't we turn to The Simpsons and how this film has sort of played out and particularly when it comes to Professor Frink in the series. So do you want to kick us off here? I, I see you have a nice note. Yeah, I, I mean, unlike the other films and episodes we've talked about, there's no one specific Frink episode to point to here. You know, there's no one episode where the plot is like a direct lift from The Nutty Professor. But I thought that was kind of interesting that we didn't end up finding an episode because... Well, there's two things here. The first is that, like, Frank, maybe I'm not accurate here, but he's one of the few characters on the show that I feel like everyone who loves The Simpsons can do a Professor Frank impression, even if it's just Glavin, um, you know, like, nice lady, which is obviously the Jerry Lewis thing. Right. But, you know, it, there are only a handful of Simpson characters that I feel like are easily impersonated and sort of, like, have found their way into everyday vernacular and Frank is one of those. What I think is so interesting about that is that he is one of the few supporting characters on the Simpsons that has remained a supporting character and only a supporting character because I think as time went on and as new writers came in and new showrunners came in, they sort of looked to some of those sort of side characters and developed them more and, and gave them full episodes. So, you know, like, Apu has had several major story arcs, Skinner, Barney, Burns, like all of these characters that just simply sort of started out as ways for them to make a funny joke at the expense of this stereotype, be it a, you know, uh, foreigner running a convenience store or the rich old man running the power plant or the, the school principal or the drunk, like they all eventually became these fully developed characters that had not only episodes dedicated to them, but actually like full on character arcs over the course of the series. Yes. But Frank, for whatever reason, he's literally seems to be there just so he can come in, deliver a punchline or deliver a gag or deliver a joke. Like he's just always been relegated to supporting. Yeah. And, and that's really interesting to me. Yeah. I don't know why it's so interesting to me, but I, yeah, it's like, I never really thought about it well, until we started digging into this. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, there are like a handful of other characters that kind of fit that bill, uh, but most of them aren't named, right? I mean, so you have like mm-hmm. the sea captain, right? Yep. Or you have uh, what the wise guy. Right. Why? Yeah. Comic book guy. Although I think he's had a co- he's had a few episodes dedicated to. I mean, granted, like I'm also speaking in terms of like my memory of the show, which right. basically ends at season 13 and they're <laughs> now on like season 35. Yeah. So. I, I started looking into this a little bit. And so there are a couple like latter day episodes that do feature Frank more prominently. But it takes until season 30, 30 no, maybe 30, <laughs> season 31. So very yeah. recently to have a full episode that is about Professor Frank. I, so in in my opinion, my my thesis still, st- if it took him 30 years to get there. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, you know, even, like I said, it's, it's I, I think of a lot of these, like, Millhouse, um, 
Nelson, yep. Ralph, like uh, like pretty, pretty much, much everyone. Except, like Lewis. Yeah, like <laughs> Lewis didn't. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, and like Kearney and J- Jimbo, but those aren't characters that I think non Simpsons people would necessarily know. Yeah. Whereas I feel like Frank has sort of crossed over into this territory of like incredibly well known, incredibly memorable and yet just a supporting. Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of it is that he gets some of the very best gags in, 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 <laughs> in, in entire does. episodes, and he's one of the characters that really stretches the reality of the show, where you get these, just these moments where suddenly there's like a sci-fi element introduced that's kind of like, you know, breaks the reality of the family sitcom setup of mm-hmm. The Simpsons, but then quickly snaps back. That was always the sort of, uh, I think it was a Matt Groening rule, was just that the reality of The Simpsons is like elastic band, so you can stretch it, but then it always has to kind of snap back. I think they've maybe moved a little beyond that, uh, <laughs> is, you know, as time went on, but that was the rule for a long time. And so uh, Frank often is like the furthest out that the elastic band stretches before it snaps back in an episode. So I think that like that's part of why he's memorable to me is it's just like, you know, you get death rays and you get like, you know, robots and all sorts of crazy inventions well, that are really funny in the It's show. funny because so in my in our, our our Simpsons the complete guide to our favorite family, it has character bios for basically all of the characters on the show up to that point. And uh I'll just read what it says for Professor Frank. Professor Frank, profession, mad scientist, appearance, tousled hair, thick glasses, white smock. Vocal lilt, annoying. (laughs) Shortcomings, creates inventions that never work properly. Uh, Past flubs, constructed robots to protect Mr. Burns that turned violent towards the boss and exploded. (laughs) This, uh, This next one is one of my favorite Professor Frank moments. Blew up Moe's tavern while attempting to strike a comet plunging towards Springfield. Oh, dear God, no! (laughs) Uh, In fact, let's just, let's roll the clip. Hi, good evening, ladies. Wait, Sterling! What's the plan? All right, just take your seat, just take your seat. Now, working with former Carter administration officials and military men who were forced into early retirement for various reasons, which we won't go into here, okay, we have planned this defense for the city. As the comet hurdles toward the city, our rocket will intercept it and blow it to smithereens. Why? Oh, dear God, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's a really good I, one. It's a very good one. Well, so let's maybe jump to his very first appearance in the show. Yeah. Which actually, like, it's pretty early on. It's in season two, I think. Yeah, yeah, near the end of season two. So it's season two, episode 17. It's called Old Money. Um, it is the episode where Abe Simpson falls in love with a fellow senior citizen, and then she passes right. away and leaves him her inheritance. And uh, Frank comes in, you know, his first appearance is in a lineup of all of these people who are trying to get Abe Simpson's money, basically. And so uh, apparently doing a little research on, like, why this character came up was they kind of wanted just, like, a generic mad scientist character. And so mm. this mad scientist character would come in say that he has a death ray and then and try to get Abe's money to build the death ray. And what happened was Hank Azaria, when he was voicing the role, just decided to kind of slip on this Jerry Lewis impression that he likes. And uh, it kind of stuck. Everyone really liked it. And so they actually changed the design of the character to match that impression. Oh, so interesting. Originally, he was a little bit more sinister, a little bit more of a classic like mad scientist character. 
and they ma- they made him a little bit more Jerry Lewisy, and particularly a little bit more Julius Kelpy. Um, that's where the huh. buck teeth and like all of that sort of thing comes from. Um, the match. tousled hair. The... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, exactly. And so I was I recently finished Mike Reese's book about the Simpsons, Springfield Confidential, which is you know it's a really good read if you're a Simpsons fan, of course. Um, but yeah. he actually had this great section where he was talking about like how are Simpsons characters created. Um, and as it turns out, this is actually pretty normal. So he says, our characters are created the same way babies are created by accident. Uh, almost <laughs> all our characters first appear in the script, vaguely described with a joke or two. Then our actors find a funny voice to go with the line and our animators draw a character that fits the voice. If all that makes us laugh when we see it animated, a character is born. And that's, that's hmm. kind of the story with Professor Front, well, yeah. from what I can, I can uh, find. Um, so why don't we listen to the clip and we'll just hear his very first appearance on the show. What the hell is that? Why, it's a death ray, my good man. Behold. Hey, feels warm. Kind of nice. Well, it is just the prototype. With proper funding, I'm confident this little baby could destroy an area the size of New York City. <laughs> but I want to help people, not kill them. Oh, well, to be honest, the ray only has evil applications. You know, my wife will be happy. She's hated this whole death ray thing from day one. <laughs> so he's married, apparently. Well, see, that's the thing. It's like you can kind of tell that that bit was written for a slightly different character than who Professor Frank ends up being. Absolutely. Um, like that, that last line in particular kind of feels like he's like a family man who just happens to be a mad scientist, which isn't really the vibe you get from Professor Frank later on. Um, so, But I thought that was interesting. And Hank Azaria, he voices a lot of the secondary characters in The Simpsons, of course. Yeah. And as it turns out, actually, a lot of them are impersonations. Um, it's just yep. that some of them are not great impersonations. Um, <laughs> and he will be the first to tell absolutely. you that. And, and that's, <laughs> that's actually kind of what makes them great, because they actually sort of take on a character of their own over time as those characters kind of mm-hmm. get more moments and, and more development. So, like, you know, you have uh, Chief Wiggum, who was originally apparently a parody of David Brinkley, but when Hank Azaria was told it was too slow, he switched it to that of Edward G. Robinson. And there are a couple mm-hmm. like nods to that throughout the series as well. Officer Lou is Sylvester Stallone. Did not know that. Yep. I, didn't, I never picked up on that one until I did a little research. Um, Dr. Nick is famously a bad Ricky Ricardo impression. Again, he'd be the first <laughs> to admit that. Um, the wise guy voice. Not everyone knows who the wise guy is, but he's often the guy in the crowd who, who makes some snide remark. And he's the Charles Bronson impression, right? Yes. So anyway, you you, you kind of get the idea. Well, and then of course, probably that probably I would say the most famous one that you if you didn't know you wouldn't know, um, but he talks about it, it at in great length in the commentary is that Mo was actually a Pacino impression, right? And he just basically was like, I was just so bad at it that it eventually sort of fell into being Mo. Mo is based on Al Pacino from Dog Day Afternoon. The first audition I had was for Mo, and I was doing a play at the time where I was playing a drug dealer, and I was talking like this. And like, Pacino, young Pacino up here, and you said you wanted to be raspy, so I made it raspy. And then, you know, and I think that, you know, it's interesting, like, so Hank Azaria was actually nominated for the role of Frank for an Emmy uh, in 2020. Oh. Yes, 2020. <laughs> and, you know, in an interview about this nomination, you know, he talked about how honored he was. And of course, he's like, it's just a Jerry Lewis impression. But, you know, what he had to say about this, this movie is, as a kid, that was one of the first things I belly laughed at. 
Jerry Lewis doing that voice. Huh. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Also interesting, he was actually born the year after The Nutty Professor was released. Oh, um, so I don't know what, you know, it's hard to say exactly when he saw it. I mean, maybe it was like, re, you know, on TV in the 70s. Well, yeah, like we like we sort of talked about, right. uh, you know, these guys seeing these movies on, on TV. Right. And, and also, you know, so the character of Julius Kelp also appeared in other Jerry Lewis movies, at, you know, both before and after this as just yes. a voice, basically, or a sort of like generic geeky character, geeky, geeky uncle sort of thing. So it's possible that he actually saw it in another movie first and then saw this later. And of course, The Simpsons has actually sort of done the bit of Professor Frank transforming into Buddy Love. That it's come up a couple times in the series. Right. The 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 instance that came to my mind immediately was the scene in Grandpa versus Sexual Inadequacy after he drinks Grandpa's tonic. Right. Mm, I doubt very highly that one elixir could boast so many fantastic properties. <laughs> Let's say we amscray out of here and have a wild wing ding at the cyclotron, Doctor. Anything you say, Professor. But I forgot that there was also one much later in the blunder years. Right. Uh, so let's 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 take a listen to to that. My friend, you will be a makeout artist. Blame him, that's a powerful woven. Hey, but whoa, hold it, cause it's different. I move. Hey, Cupcake, listen good. I want you to swallow that gum and meet me in the coat room in five, four, three, two, now. Whatever you say, Professor. And back you go. Ooh, the hate. No, no, don't make me. I don't want to go back to the nothing. I don't... Oh, dear, I've redorculated. <laughs> Yeah, I, the reason I like that transformation the best is just because you really get to hear him do all the glavin, you know, like crazy, yeah, crazy yeah. frink noises. Frinky, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, the the other one is much more, it's just like a quick sort of yeah. nod to, I, it's probably the first time that they're acknowledging that we're doing the Nutty Professor here. Right. Uh, whereas this is like a much more full-on gag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, but it is interesting that it, it appears in that episode with the tonic. I, I think mm -hmm. there's something to that. I'd be very curious if I, that was yeah. inspired by that weird final scene in The Nutty Professor. <laughs> so, yeah, do you have any other favorite moments from Professor Frink that, like, you know, I mean, obviously he has so many different inventions and gags throughout the series. Uh, well, you texted me early on, and we sort of decided, like, we can't focus on one Professor Frank episode. It doesn't really make sense. So, like, we just need to talk about our favorite Professor Frank moments. And this is the one that immediately came to my mind. Well, hey, uh, all right, so the compression and expansion of the longitudinal waves cause the erratic oscillation, you can see it there, of the neighboring particles. <sighs> yes, what is it? What? What is it? Can I play with it? No, you can't play with it. You won't enjoy it on as many levels as I do. I love the colors, children. <laughs> and, of course, my nieces have that toy. And whenever I, I would play with it and be like, the colors, children. And they'd just look at me and be like, what is Uncle Adam talking about? Um, nice. But an another another one that I quite like, and I believe you actually pointed this one out, is uh, one of his inventions from Homer the Vigilante. So let's take a look at that quickly. Well, as you can see, when the burglar trips the alarm, the house raises from its foundations and runs down the street and around the corner to safety. 
Well, the, the real humans won't, uh, won't, won't burn quite so fast in there. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the final one, which is actually the one that is quoted in the Simpsons book that we were looking at earlier, features uh, just a, a truly, truly great line reading from, from Hank Azaria. Brace yourselves, gentlemen. According to the gas chromatograph, the secret ingredient is... Love! Who's been screwing with this thing? <laughs> I just love the wow. way gas. Well, no, I love the way he says gas chromatograph. Yeah, dude, <laughs> like it's so just good. the whole setup. <laughs> the whole thing is so yeah. good. It's just I have this weird thing on The Simpsons where I, certain line readings just, for whatever reason, make me laugh uproariously. Well, you've probably seen these and, some of these episodes so many times that you're now it's like the minute little things that get you. You know. Yeah. Well, there's what my favorite one. It was actually it was I was saying to Morgan the other night, I saw a gif of it on like on Twitter or something like one of the Simpson things that I follow posted it and it had no sound, but I could hear the line reading and I laughed and it's when they go to a, like, um, what is the store? It's like one of those upscale. It, they basically like Sky Mall, but there was a specific name for oh, those stores. Oh, Radio Shack? Uh, no, sharper, like a hammock. Sharper image? Sharper image, yeah, yes. They go, go to a, sh- a, sharp, a parody of the Sharper image, and Bart goes, hey, Lise, check out this Space Age toothbrush, and he starts brushing his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Adam's cracking up here. <laughs> and Lisa, Lisa goes... <laughs> and Lisa goes... <laughs> See, look at it's not it's not that funny but i just this it's hysterical lisa goes that's an electric nostril groomer and it's yardley smith's line reading of it is so dry and deadpan and disgusted that's an electric nostril groomer and i i I, like i would quote this and just start doing what i just did of just laughing up and morgan would just constantly look at me and be like what is the what is your problem that is not funny so yes there are some line readings in this show that just leave me in stitches I, and gas chromatograph is definitely up there i also i also love that you just described the sharper image as like a real life sky mall magazine because that's that's really on point one of my all-time favorite comedy scenes is actually from when harry met sally uh they go to, they go to a sharper image and sing uh what is it uh oh what the hell's the song it's from uh that oh we took we mentioned it on the podcast uh the, oh no uh it's it's the the script is by Roald Dahl. It's a musical. Um, chitty chitty bang chitty bang chitty bang bang. But the what's the song about the thing they ride? Uh, boom boom chitty chitty bang bang chitty Shit. Wait, the car. Maybe not it's the song about the Maybe car. No, okay. Uh, no, wait. It's the, something here. with the fringe on top. Oh, uh, uh, yes. Um, hold on. With the fr- it's that's from Oklahoma. I think. Oh. Surrey with Surrey, the fringe. You're right. It's from Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. They, and and uh, you, Billy Crystal singing uh, uh, Surrey with the fringe on top, and then he runs into his ex-wife. Um, anyway, <laughs> that would be probably one good movie. Yeah. Good movie. I don't, I, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if it's ever in uh, a Simpsons episode, but When Harry Met Sally is a very very good one movie. of my all-time favorite romantic comedies. One of the few comedies that I watch like constantly. Yeah, no, it's so. And Billy Crystal is the yeah. best. 
Um, okay, so we so, uh, now now we've got completely uh, off right. the rails. Well, so okay, so uh, what you know? Yeah, so there, there are a couple. There are also a couple like actual Jerry Lewis references in The Simpsons that I thought were pretty relevant. Since we're probably never going to watch another Jerry Lewis movie, <laughs> um, that that this is the time. This is the time that we're going to bring it up. So yeah. there's actually a pretty deep cut reference in The Simpsons to Jerry Lewis's kind of, uh, well, number one, his like philanthropic career that happened sort of late after he stopped being a popular movie person. He was actually the chairman of the Muscular Dystrophy Association and did these telethons for years, years and years and years. It was from 1966 to 2010. He ran these telethons every Labor Day. Yeah. And I remember watching them. Really? With my dad. Oh, wow. Well, like not all, uh, like we've watched one or two of them, but like, again, my... He he has all of them on tape. He watches them. (laughs) 1966 (laughs) to 2010. Marathon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I have, I've definitely watched one or two, or maybe I've just like seen the clip, the famous like clips of, because he would bring on, again, he would bring on all these like classic Hollywood guests um, would come on the telethon. Right, right, right. And so one of those guests, which actually I think it seems like it was a surprise to him uh, in 1976, was actually Dean Martin. And so their comedy musical partnership broke up in 1956. They were together for about 10 years, and it it did not end well. Very acrimonious. Uh, Surprise, Jerry Lewis has a lot of stories like that in his career. He also left Paramount quite mysteriously um, and, and various other partnerships. But uh, but yeah, all that to say, they're not on good terms. And so this was about 20 years after they stopped speaking to each other. Um, Dean Martin appears on the MDA telethon and they have this sort of interaction where they both look super awkward, but they kind of hug. And there's this sort of sense of like, I don't know, maybe are they speaking up? But everyone's clapping and excited to see them together again. So it's this like really famous TV moment. All right, all right, break it up, break it up. What is this here? Break it up. I think it's about time, don't you? Thank you. I think it's about time. And uh, the Simpsons parodies this MDA telethon 1976 moment in the episode Black Widower from season three. And, of course, it's it's between Krusty the Clown and uh, Sideshow Bob. Uh, Krusty the Clown's kind of their, like, catch-all for, like, all show business types, um, even though he's like the host of a children's television show, <laughs> he's also like a late night host sometimes and also like a famous comedian at other times. So this is kind of one of those moments where Krusty the Clown apparently does telethons, in this case for uh, motion sickness. <laughs> Krustela, there's an old friend backstage who wants to say hello. Huh? What? I can't believe it. We've been treating for years. Come here, you. Oh, you old clown. Oh, you. <laughs> this guy is a national treasure. That jerk I got to replace you, he isn't fit to hold your slide whistle. All I can be is myself. Krusty, can you ever forgive me for framing you and putting you in jail? Hey, if they ever open the books on this telethon, I'm right back in there. <laughs> Featuring Sideshow Bob, my all-time favorite Simpsons side Yes, and I wish, you could all, I wish you could all see the expression on Sideshow Bob's face the moment before they <laughs> hug. It is like a classic piece of animation there. Yeah, it must have been a David Silverman joint because, like, you can always tell when he's animating and he loves the. It's also, and of course, also, too, like, the old character off the top is obviously supposed to be like old Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I mean, it is 
one of those moments where it's like, this is a deep cut even for them. Yeah, <laughs> like totally. You you really have to be in the know to sort of know, but they kind of like help it along with the line of like, oh, they've been feuding for years. Like it's right, it's, right. And I feel like it, it is a very you know for people of a certain age at that point, they may remember that specific TV moment. But as a kid, it's completely over your head. And even even if you've seen the movie, even if you all of that stuff, it's probably still over yeah. your head because it's a it's a really bizarre reference in some way. Which is funny because I've definitely seen that moment before, yeah. but I don't know why. Like I know I've seen the like the famous reunion, but again, I, it could just be because my dad made me watch some like lifetime yeah. Dean Martin special. Right? Yeah, it's like know, could but... be a bio of either of them. Could have been like yeah. I love the seventies or something. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, so I thought, again, it's just like one of those things that like you could totally miss in the show, but that's where it's from. Go figure. And then, of course, famously, Jerry Lewis himself eventually does cameo on the show as Professor Frank's dad in Treehouse of Horror. What is this? Fourteen. Am I Roman? Rocky, Rocky ten plus Rocky four is Rocky fourteen. Uh, yeah, Treehouse of Horror fourteen. I remember this airing. This is definitely when I've sort of fallen. This actually might be the episode that like did it for you where I was sort of like, I am not tuning in Sunday nights religiously anymore. Yeah, it's overall, it's not a great effort on Jerry Lewis's <laughs> part. He literally sounds like he's phoning it in. Like even the quality of the recording is kind of eh. But there was like one funny moment near the end that I pulled out here that made me chuckle a little bit, if nothing else. I may be a soul, but I'm hungry. Can you throw in a little matzo? Maybe a nice piece of fish. Why, of course, Father. Allow me to satisfy your Hebraic desires. That's a good schmendler. Oh, I've waited so long to hear you say that. What does it mean? Is it dirty? <laughs> Yiddish humor is always, yeah. always funny. I, and I like, I like the, I, again, I like the, the line reading on Maybe a nice piece of fish. <laughs> yeah. So this is definitely of the era when I started like falling off. And, you know, like we've sort of talked about it. Maybe I aged out a little bit or it was just like I was mid high school. You know, I didn't make time for much yeah. TV at that point anyway. So but it is at that sort of tail end of when I was religiously watching the show. So uh, but I do vividly remember watching this episode right. and this being a thing and probably again it was probably my dad who was like oh jerry lewis that's nutty that's who he's doing the impression of it's etc so well they, you know they were good at like back when i still occasionally watched fox on an actual tv um they were pretty <laughs> yeah. good at like mar- promos, yeah, marketing yeah. like those key guests or like story beats and stuff in the show to like bring people back who maybe had fallen off a little bit. Like I remember Maud's death. Mm-hmm. Some of those key moments definitely like brought me back in over the years. And like I saw that the Simpsons movie, all of that sort of stuff definitely yeah. uh, I still came back for. So, and I I definitely in university came back because like they brought back Sideshow Bob or Sideshow Bob. You know, I'm all, I'm all in for a Sideshow Bob yeah. episode. But um, but yeah. At the end of the day, what I do think is so interesting is like Frank has been used quite extensively. And again, usually for them to be able to set up a hilarious gag or punchline. But he has never really gotten the level of stories that some of the other similar type characters have over the years. And maybe that's just because they recognize that, like, don't mess with a good thing. Like he works. He was designed to be this character to 
deliver a gag and that's what he's good at and that's what we're going to keep him around for and that's well, and that. he, he's, he's you know the nice thing too i think about him is that his, the gags work really well with the plots because there's yes. usually a moment in the episode you know because there's a central conflict of course it's a story and there's always a moment where someone's talking to professor frank and they think that they're going to use science to solve the problem and so he, that's when they bring in Professor Frank and then he has a crazy invention and then it blows up in his face and you get the gag, right? So it's like, it ties so neatly into the story that it's just such a, like a great engine for gags, basically, I feel like. But yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'd, I'd just sooner see a great, like, five-second Professor Frank gag than watch this movie again. <laughs> So I, I think that's my my verdict. I'm jumping the gun here, but I think that's my verdict is I, you know, it's like I wouldn't really recommend this unless you're really dedicated to either you really love stuff from this era already, in which case you've probably already seen this movie, or yeah. you're like really dedicated to like doing what we're doing of like digging into where did the Simpsons get these things, but for your own enjoyment. Or you're crossing off every single right. one of those AFI 100s and you want to, yeah. this is one, because this is on, the, the this list. is definitely on the for list. Sure. And that's, I, I, I forgot to mention that that's my original familiarity with the Nutty Professor was seeing that special and again, right. them highlighting scenes right. from it. But, but, but um, yeah, at the end of the day, just watch The Simpsons, man. It's, it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, like you were saying earlier, there are a lot of other movies that take all the good stuff in this film and do it better, more polished, better. and they kind of run with bits and pieces of it in different directions, right? You have some folks taking the filmmaking part and really refining that. You have some folks taking the, the comedy part and really refining that. And I would rather watch any of those imitators <laughs> than the original in this case. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I rewatched uh, the... I promise I'm going somewhere with this, but I rewatched the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre last okay, night, sure. first day of summer. And I was like, mm, I want to watch a, a hot movie, like a movie that reflects the heat of the day I've okay. been feeling. And that felt appropriate. And I had been conversing with someone recently and they were like, that's actually not as bad as you think it is. All of this is to say that I was like, oh, I really wish I had just watched the mm. original because the, the remake pales in comparison. But this is definitely, you're right, this is the opposite of right. that. The, the imitators and the things that have come subsequently are vastly superior. I, I, I am 100% with you. I would not recommend this. Uh, in terms of, like, extra credit, I mean, I guess if you really liked this, then check out the other, like, Jerry Lewis material. Because as, as you mentioned he had a deal where he had to make 14 yeah films there's 14 and, more of these <laughs> there's a lot more of this stuff um but i certainly i know the film that he is very highly regarded for is martin scorsese's the king of comedy where he's playing sort of a washed up he's essentially playing himself he's playing this like once famous comedian who is sort of just resting on his laurels and living in malibu in this big mansion or whatever uh, and I am not this person, but if you enjoyed that Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, like the two major influences on that were Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. So, yeah, if you liked that, then certainly you should check out The King of Comedy. But to that point, I think like we had sort of alluded to earlier and you had actually sort of suggested this, 
instead of watching a Jerry Lewis movie, go back and watch old Jim Carrey movies. Yeah. Because, like, those, at least I think, hold up a lot better. And they're kind of in the same vein of that, like, wacky, slapsticky, cartoonish humor. Right. Like, The Mask does what this is trying to do so much better. Right. Like, it establishes those rules early on. It's got very, very cartoony visual gags. But it's... They work. At least when I rewatched it, granted it was like at least 10 years ago, but when I did rewatch it at that point, I was like, damn, this movie holds up. Like, there's some good stuff in this, and Jim Carrey's great. I mean, I remember loving that movie when I was younger, and, you know, I think I've seen all, all, probably all of the Jim Carrey comedies from like the 1990s. Definitely grew up with that. In retrospect, I don't think I'd rewatch most of them, but I would definitely rewatch The Mask because it's totally my kind of movie. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's the one that probably holds up the best. The rest of them are a little less so. It's the least, like, gross-out humor of all of them, I yeah. think. I mean, and, and as I remember, it has a, a pretty cool story. I love the sort of supernatural element. It, it has a it has story. story. That's, I would say that's the difference. It has a story. And the character, kind of going back to the film, has this kind of Jekyll and Hyde character, too, right? Which is nice, because I think that's one of the things that always turned me off about other Jim Carrey movies is the main character is always an asshole. The mask is nice because you have, you know, the asshole and the schmuck and they kind of balance each other out much like this movie does. But again, it it kind of does it better, I think. Yeah, it's funny because the parallels are very it's kind of similar. It's like this nerdy guy wants to win over this girl and then he becomes this over the top, like suave and debonair, but kind of annoying. (laughs) He has a green face and hits people with a giant mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there is that. There is that. Yes. Yes. Uh, Damn. Now I want to rewatch. I know. We should have, we should have picked that instead of this piece of shit. All the Simpsons doesn't parody it. So, you know, we can't ever watch it. And then, you know, the other movie too, that kind of in the same vein of the King of comedy, right. Is man on the moon, which is actually, I love that movie. And I think Jim Carrey's excellent in it, but again, it's a drama about comedy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. And for anyone who's not familiar, it's a it's a biopic about Andy Kaufman. And I think actually it kind of speaks to some of the sort of personal stuff that you were talking about with Jerry Lewis as well, about how far comedians go and how they can mistreat people in their life. I mean, particularly men tend to yeah. mistreat the people in their life for the sake of comedy or just because they kind of get too big a head or whatever. And so... I think it's a really, really interesting movie, and Jim Carrey's performance in it is excellent. Andy Kaufman, again, is like one of these people who's kind of like an iconic comic who influenced a whole generation of people, but also was a really complicated person in terms of... Deep, deeply complicated. Yeah, for sure. So I'd highly recommend that one. Have you seen the documentary about the making of Man on the Moon? That's yes. that Jim Carrey... It's on Netflix, which... Where, where you start to realize Carrie's also, um, you know, has yeah, a complicated side not, to him as well, for sure. Yeah, and in fact, that was the film that I did the interview with him for. Was he was promoting that film? So, oh, interesting. Um, and I think he he changed a lot as a result of that experience. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you haven't seen Man on the Moon, see Man on the Moon, and then watch this. I believe it's called. Um, Jim versus Andy or something like. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, right. Something it's on Netflix, and I remember after watching it, I was like. I feel like this movie is going to get pulled from Netflix in a couple of years because it really doesn't paint certain individuals in a very good light. And I feel like they're going to regret allowing this to be made. But um, it's a very like no holds barred. Like, let's put it all out there and vastly more interesting (laughs) than the nutty (laughs) professor. So, yeah. Yeah. So 
Normally, this is the part where we would tell you what we're going to watch next, but we've decided actually that this is going to be where we sort of take a pause for the time being. We will do another episode where we sort of take a walk down memory lane, although it hasn't been that long, but sort of look back on what we've watched so far, draw some parallels, see some connections, maybe rank what we viewed, and then we'll we'll see where we go from there. But uh, thank you so much for joining us on this journey so far. We really hope that you like it. If you if you do, please, please leave a review. Please reach out on Twitter. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear more of. You know, reach out with maybe what films would you like to see us take a look at next? You know, we've got a very huge database. Nate has put a lot of time and effort into building the database of references. So there are plenty for us to choose from. But if there's something that you would like to hear us dig into, we are definitely open to suggestions. And if you're a Simpsons writer and want to come and join us on this journey, please get in touch. uh, Because we would love to have, you know, some guests for this next round. But uh Yeah, again, thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. Share the episode with Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. And in the meantime, see you around the plex. Hopefully by next season, we will have a a much better sign-off than that. Because it's it's still terrible. We'll see. I I, I can't promise anything. Uh, But yeah, join us next time for the race to the bottom. Who will win, the Nutty Professor or You Only Live Twice? Oh, God, I can't. Wow. See you around the plex. Oh, the colors, children.